Amen and good evening. Our sermon text this evening comes from Hebrews chapter 2 and then a few verses in Hebrews chapter 4. I'll read both. First Hebrews 2 verse 17. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the living God, and we say, Thanks, Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your gifts to us. We thank you right now, especially for sending your Son, born of the Virgin and the Holy Spirit. And he came and he dwelled among men. I pray this evening that we'll marvel at this, this truth that many of us have known for a long time. I pray that this truth will refresh us. And I pray that in light of Jesus' humanity, we will approach boldly the throne of grace through him. We pray in his name. Amen. So what I aim to do tonight is a bit more topical than is the norm for us. I want to speak tonight of our Lord's incarnation and speak of his humanity in particular. And in, in these matters, it's Christology, the study of Christ. I owe so much of my thought to an old professor of mine, Douglas Kelly, and I've recently benefited from Tim Wilson and David Mathis. On these matters, too, I just want to make mention of their names up front. Let's start then with the basic idea of Jesus' incarnation. When one says that Jesus is incarnate, when one says that Jesus is God incarnate, it really means that Jesus is God in the flesh. God is enfleshed. And the incarnation of God is utterly unique. It had not happened before. When Jesus came, this is the first time. And it will not happen again. It will not happen to anyone else. Jesus alone is the God-man. He is truly God. He is truly man. And this truth is so glorious that God became man, that many find it too difficult to believe. They believe it is impossible. And so they deny Jesus is God, or they don't take the time to think it through. But it's not just those outside of the church that struggle with this doctrine. This doctrine is argued over as much as any doctrine in the Bible. 
think about this question, though, for a moment. Do you think people are more likely to deny that Jesus is truly God? Or do you think people are more likely to deny that Jesus is truly and completely man? It's an interesting question. It's possible to err in either direction. And indeed, many have erred in both directions throughout church history. Many have denied Jesus' deity. Many have denied his humanity. But I think it's interesting. Here's a quote from that theologian I mentioned, Douglas Kelly. He says this, quote, Most of the ecumenical councils of the undivided church, except for the first one, Nicaea, which had to clearly assert the full deity of Christ against the Arians, most of the councils devoted their energies to defending the full humanity of Christ. His humanity seemed harder to be accepted and apprehended than his divinity. And then there's several councils here I'm just going to mention. In Constantinople, Council in 381, that affirmed Jesus' perfect humanity against the Apollinarians who denied his human mind. In Ephesus 431, that council affirmed that Jesus Christ is one person against the Nestorians who divided him into two persons. Chalcedon in 451, they affirmed there are two distinct natures in one person, united without confusion, conversion, division, or separation. And then in Constantinople in 680, it taught that Jesus Christ possessed a human will as well as a divine will against the monophilites. It's interesting, isn't it? And I think that even in our day, for some of us at least, it's hard for us to accept that Jesus is truly, completely man. When you think of Jesus, what comes to mind? Do you think of a man who is able to sympathize with you completely? That's my intention tonight, and I think that's the argument here in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4. First, let's turn to Hebrews 2. Again, this is verse 17. It says this, Jesus was made like his brethren. Before that, though, it says, in all things, he was made like his brethren. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. So two things there. In all things, he was made like his brethren. And then that. There's a little phrase there. This is the purpose. This signifies the purpose of his being made like his brethren in all things. Why was he made like his brethren in all things? Well, so that he might be an appropriate high priest. Jesus had to be a human in order to be our high priest and make propitiation for sins. Think about this. God alone did not accomplish salvation. Let me say that again. God alone did not accomplish salvation. It had to be the God man. It had to be a man. And so God became man. 
Jesus had to be human in order to be our high priest and make propitiation for our sins. I think that's the argument there in 2.17. A priest must make the sacrifice and change God's attitude towards the people. If we look at Hebrews 5, priests, priests in general, they have to be taken from among men. This from Hebrews 5, every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And then note this, the priest, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. The nature of priests is that they're one of the people. The Levites, Aaron himself, they were one of the people. They were sinners. They could represent people because they were part of the people. We see this with Moses, too, playing a similar role between God and Israel. He stood between the two parties as a mediator, and he could represent Israel because he was part of Israel. Jethro gave him this advice in Exodus 18. Stand before God, he's telling Moses, stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And so Moses stood before God as a representative and God heard him. John Owen on Hebrews says this. His nature had to be perfectly holy so he could exactly discharge, according to God's will, all that was required of him in his role of high priest. But this was not all the condition of the brothers required. Their sorrows, weakness, miseries are such that their comfort in this life required Christ's compassion. Therefore, Christ was made like them in the infirmities of their nature, their temptations and sufferings from where all their sorrows arise. So Christ's sufferings and temptations equipped him with all the necessary qualifications for his office. In other words, the one who accomplished salvation had to be man. Looking back at Hebrews 2.17 again, in all things, what does that mean? He was made like us in all things. He was made like the brethren in all things. Our confession speaks to this. It says this. When the fullness of time came, Jesus took upon himself human nature. With all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. So our confession acknowledges Jesus was made human completely. All the essential properties and common weaknesses or infirmities of it, but without sin, Jesus was completely man. So our confession, like Hebrews 2.17, makes this case. There's another argument here from Gregory of Nazantius. This is a historical argument. A number of theologians have picked up on this. You may have heard this. Gregory said this, That which is not assumed is not healed. That which is not assumed is not healed. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus assumed 
human nature. That is, he took it upon himself. He became one with it. He assumed it. Jesus assumed human nature. He did not become an angel. He didn't assume angelic nature. He assumed human nature. He did not become a beast of the field. Nor, and this is the, the danger, I think, for some of us in the church at large, Jesus did not become part human. He was not part God. He was not part human. Truly God. Truly human. I'm pressing it just a little bit further, if Jesus only assumed a human body, then what would be redeemed? If Jesus only assumed a human body, only the human body would be redeemed. Or, if Jesus only assumed a human heart, then only the human heart would be redeemed. And we could go on with other examples, but that is not what he did. Jesus is totally man. And so, the argument of Hebrews is because he is totally man, he accomplished salvation for men. So this evening, what I want to do is take a brief survey of the New Testament and just look at some of these examples in the New Testament. What does it mean that Jesus became like us in all things? I won't cover everything, but I want to cover several examples. And the goal of all this is simple. There's no outline really tonight. The aim is really one. And that is Jesus assumed our nature so that he could accomplish our salvation. Second part, therefore approach boldly the throne of grace. And I'll repeat that a time or two as we go through. Firstly, I want to look at this, Jesus assumed a human mind, and therefore he redeems the human mind. Again, one of the church councils spoke to this truth, but let's look at it biblically. We know that Jesus took on a human mind because we see that he had to grow in wisdom. The Gospel of Luke says that Jesus grew in stature and wisdom. Jesus' human mind had to go through the stages of development, just like yours and mine. Jesus learned from his earthly father, Joseph, how to do carpentry. He didn't come out of the womb knowing that. He had to learn it according to his humanity. Jesus even had to learn what the scriptures said according to his humanity. Remember that time Jesus, after the fact, after the feast of the Passover, he got lost, and his parents left without him, and they looked in the caravan, and they didn't see him, so they went back to Jerusalem. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, seeking him. Now so it was after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And then later, it says that Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and found 
favor with God and men. In that story, Jesus sat with the scribes and he asked them questions. God in the flesh asking the teachers questions. He gave them answers, but he was also asking them questions. How could this be? It's possible because Jesus was truly and actually human. His mind had to absorb the scriptures according to his humanity. He had to grow in stature and wisdom. There are other examples. One quick one, this one from Mark chapter 13. And Jesus says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So in this case, Jesus is confessing that there's something that I don't know. But what he means there is, according to my humanity, yes. I do not know the time or the hour, but only the Father. So Jesus is made up of a human mind and a divine mind. Think about this. Without assuming the human mind, he would not have been able to redeem the human mind. So this is grace. We thank God that Jesus had a human mind because now our human minds can be redeemed. Secondly, Jesus assumed a human will. Jesus assumed a human will and therefore he redeems the human will. The will of God is meant to describe God's eternal decree and plan for the world. The will of God can also refer to God's moral commands and desires for the world. And Jesus, being truly God, he has a divine will. And this divine will is the same will as the Father and the Spirit. They have one triune will. And this divine will has always existed, and it will always exist. So to say that Jesus assumed a human will is to say that he took it up during his incarnation. When Jesus became man, part of what that means is that he assumed a human will just like he assumed a human mind. The explanation on this part. There are times in the Gospels where we see Jesus speak of God's divine will and his own human will. And again, these two wills are separate. But the wonderful thing is that Jesus' human will always submits to the divine will. Jesus' human will always submits to the divine will. Here's an example. John 6, in a discourse, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And it seems, perhaps at first, like Jesus is speaking out of both sides of his mouth. But he's speaking of his human will. And he's speaking of the divine will. Another example, this one I think more clear. This from Luke 22, while Jesus was nearing his death, he's in the garden, 
pick up in verse 39. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So what's going on there? Not my will, Father, but yours be done. Then later Jesus rose up from prayer and he came to his disciples. And that's when the crowds come, they arrest him and take him to the tribunal. Jesus' human will in that moment. And God's divine will almost seem like their intention, don't they? But what does Jesus end up doing? Not my will, but yours. I will submit to you. And he does. He knows the will of God is to go to the cross. He prays, if it is your will, bring it to pass. But his human will submits to the divine will because Jesus is the greater Adam. He is the perfect human and the perfect example. What was Adam's will in the garden? Satan comes along and tempts him. Adam does not submit to the will of God. He follows his own sinful human will. May we follow Jesus in this regard. Thirdly, Jesus assumes our affections and redeems our affections. Jesus assumes human affections and redeems human affections. Affections have to do with our feelings or desires. And because of the fall, our affections are twisted and mangled and disordered. Sinful men desire twisted and grotesque things. But Jesus, being truly God and truly man, assumed a true and actual human heart. John Calvin commenting on another Hebrews passage says this about Jesus' affections. Christ has put on our flesh and also its feelings. Isn't that sweet? Jesus doesn't just put on the shell of a man. He puts on the heart of a man. He comes. He's tired. He's hungry. He weeps. He rejoices. He renews our affections because he's completely man. If he did not assume our affections, he would not redeem our affections. Another quote, Christ has put on our flesh and also its feelings or affections so that he not only paroled himself to be real man, but had also been taught by his own experience to help the miserable. That's John Calvin, and that's the rest of the quote. Think now of the range of human emotions that Jesus displayed. I mentioned some of these. He rejoiced, he got angry, he got sad, he cried, he rebuked. He spoke comforting words. 
He suffered pain, not just physical pain. He suffered on what we may call an emotional front. He was betrayed. He was left out to dry by his friends. When he was praying in Gethsemane, and he found that his disciples were not praying, but sleeping, his, his friends didn't have a heart to push through their drowsiness and pray with their Lord and teacher, and so they slept instead. And remember Jesus' response to them when he finds them sleeping. Could you not even pray with me? He has our affections, and his affections are perfectly in line with the divine will. He pleased God. And again, the encouragement is to follow in his footsteps in this regard. Fourthly, Jesus assumed a human body, and he redeems the human body. This is perhaps the implication we are most acquainted with. The human body is a creation of God. It's a wonderful gift. We are soul and body, not just one or the other. And because of the fall, our bodies are subject to decay and to death. We age rapidly. Our bodies decay. Muscles lose their strength. I'm smiling, I think, because I feel this. Because my hair is turning gray. Recently, a young college man said, I look like the guy from the Touch of Grey commercials. This is a curse. Our bodies will eventually just give out and we will die. It's true. Our bodies cannot last very long. For some, perhaps 80, 90, 100 years, and that's it. The body just decays to a point where it can go no longer. In the incarnation, Christ took on this flesh. He assumed the flesh. And his divinity, divinity is right there alongside his humanity. And now the human body has been made new again. And on the last day, those in Christ will not just ascend to heaven as floating souls suspended in the sky. Remember, we saw Jesus' body at the end of the gospel accounts. Jesus was born of an actual human woman. He has DNA. He has chromosomes and eyes and ears. He got hungry. He got tired. He had to eat and sleep. He had to grow. He went through every stage of life. He was a newborn. He was a toddler. He grew to be the child and then an adult. And he even took on a bodily death. His body was beaten. The life was taken out of it. His body was put through such stress that it quit working. So not only did he assume the body, he assumed the body's death. But God cannot die, can he? God cannot die. The author of life cannot die. He is everlasting from everlasting. He is immortal. So how did he die? Calvin again says this, He put on our nature that he might thus make himself capable of dying. For as God, he could not undergo death. But being God, a very God, death could not hold him back. This is why we're thankful Jesus is not just man. Jesus is man and he is God. And he rose from the dead bodily. And it was not just that his soul 
arose. I mentioned this a minute ago. His body came back, and it was a redeemed body, much like the one you and I, here in Christ, will one day possess. He appeared to his disciples on a number of occasions, and when he appeared to them, he demonstrated it was truly him. How? By showing them. He was able to eat and drink. He even had the marks in his hands on his side. And Thomas, who doubted, was able to touch his side. And this is good news for us. For those of us whose hair is falling out or turning gray, it's also good news for those of us with serious injuries or deformities. These sorts of things will be reversed. If you are in Christ, take heart. Jesus assumed a physical body, for he will redeem the physical body. No deformities, no injuries. And you too, think about this, you will be able to physically grab hold of Christ. Or perhaps like Mary, fall down at his feet, cling to his feet. It's physical. It's not souls, just sort of like that like ghosts in a movie just kind of floating through each other. It's physical so that there's contact. And lastly, I'll turn to Hebrews 4. This is the end game of all of this. We'll read from Hebrews 4, 14 again. Jesus was truly man, truly God, and now Hebrews 4 is going to make a really similar case that Hebrews 2 does. <clears throat> Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What does that mean, he passed through the heavens? <clears throat> well, he, he came down, didn't he? And he went back up. He didn't just stay up there. He came down. He passed through the heavens. So since that is your high priest, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus can sympathize with us. He was truly man. He is truly man and will forever be truly man. So when we think of our Savior, sometimes we can put him like, oh, well, that's Jesus. No, no, no. That's not the argument of Hebrews. The argument is approach boldly. That's verse 16. Because he was human, truly human. Therefore, approach boldly the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. He knows what it's like to be human and tempted in every which way. Therefore, he's merciful. He's faithful. And as we approach, it says this, you can obtain mercy and find grace. If any of you listening this evening do not know this grace, do not know this mercy, this news is for you as well. Jesus Christ came to the earth and he died for sinners. There is a great penalty placed upon your head for sinning against God, for rebelling against God. And that penalty will be paid. That's what hell is. There is a penalty 
for sin, but in God's great mercy, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that none of us could live and to die the death that none of us could die because we can't come back from the dead. Jesus could, and by faith in him, we are united to him. That is how you become a Christian. That is what it means to come into the Christian faith. If you have more questions about this, please feel free to speak to me afterwards. would love to speak to you further. Speak to Pastor Ryan or someone around you. A lot of people here would love to share more about this good Christmas message. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the humanity of our Lord and for the deity of our Lord Jesus. And may this day we see what a great condescension it was because he truly came all the way down to earth and lived among us that we may live with him on the final day. May we approach boldly the throne of grace. I pray that for those who are not in the faith and I pray for those who are in the faith. For Jesus sympathizes with sinners and with weak humans. We pray in his name.